0: Being a professional isn't about the money you make, the position you hold, your level of expertise, or fame. It's the motivation and the attitude you bring to your work, a desire for always learning and improving, and balancing your creative output with getting the business done. Welcome and join the Creating Pros. Hey, and welcome back to Creating Pros. I'm your host, Jim Nettles. And this week, we've got one that we've been trying to put together for a while. I have the one and only David Taylor II. Um, so, David, do you want to kind of introduce yourself? And let's let's continue the riffing here we've had going on
1: for a while. My name is David Taylor II, and I work with words. I'm an author. I write children's books. I write fantasy novels. I've made coloring books. I've made ABC books for kids. I have really, really intense epic fantasy. Uh, I have a series about how the war got started in heaven. And I have novels, novellas, coloring books, an RPG, and a comic book, uh, The Nephilim Wars. That's also set in that world. I write comic books. I have so many things I haven't unveiled yet. And some of these things are things I wrote when I was a kid. That I'm I'm just now at a place to get them out. Uh, I am also a music, musician. I play the keyboard. I'm a songwriter. I'm a top ten Billboard producer. I put uh, Cuba Gooding Sr. back on the charts after 30 years out, and we broke top ten with a song I produced. Uh, I'm also a music business educator, so I teach students about the ins and the outs of the music business. So. I'm, I'm I'm about words. I'm about storytelling. I'm about creativity. I'm one of those people where stuff comes to me in the middle of the night. My intent is always up, even when I'm sleeping and trying to sleep. And uh, and I, I just wish I had, I wish I had, I guess I would say uh, Bishop T.D. Jakes level staff or Oprah Winfrey level staff or Tyler Perry level staff. If I had a staff to take the heat of all the different departments off me. I could do what I do and just create, and I could just keep it coming, which is pretty much my dream life. (laughs) So that's me.
0: (laughs) Yeah, we're kind of kindred souls on that point. You know, need the bigger team. Mm -hmm. Well, why don't we actually start? Where did you find your love of creativity? I mean, because like, you know, as you said, you started writing a lot of this stuff when you were a kid. Mm -hmm. So... Did somebody, you know, like really help foster that for you as a kid, encourage it? Because, I mean, we we know a lot of people that, you know, they start being creative as a kid and then they lose it because it doesn't get fostered. It doesn't get, you know, nobody encourages it. Nobody sees the value in it. So did somebody help encourage that for you?
1: I actually had both experiences. It's funny uh, how you uh, conveyed that because my father was the one who introduced me to comic books. I learned how to read when I was four. I read the newspaper, I read the Bible, and I read comic books and I still love all three to this day. Uh, My creativity is innate. I know I love comics the first time I saw them. First time I saw them, the, the colors, the layout, the costumes, the fantastical powers, the villain conflict, the moral and ethical questions, the way that you can do things in the imaginary space that may or may not be possible in the real world. Um, just there's nothing about superhero comic books that I don't love. I even love the smell. We would go to the newsstand and I would smell the fresh cut newspaper and the fresh books. There's something about fresh printed stuff that has a very particular smell. I even love that. So there is nothing about comic books that I don't love. But as life went on as it does, um, uh, I didn't really, how can I say this? Uh, If you have a creative child, you have to know how to raise them because you have to raise them in a certain vein because of the nature of the creative child and because of the nature of a creative professional life. It's not a nine to five kind of thing. It's much more like constantly being pregnant. It's much more like constantly getting a seed of an idea birthed inside you. And I believe that's God planting in it inside of you. I believe that's the insemination process. And then you go through the gestation process and you get morning sickness and your body begins to stretch and. The idea begins to get so big until you can't hold it anymore. You got to push it out. But then you realize, I'm finna go through the gates of hell trying to push this thing out of me because it takes, it takes all the effort. You have to reach in the places that you didn't know you had to push out of you what you see in you. And then, like a family with a lot of kids, you got to do it again. So... (laughs) You have to know that. And so I, unfortunately, w- w- wasn't around enough people that knew how to speak to that. I was more around the uh, different areas of working and more on, you know, the get a job kind of thing and people that didn't really necessarily get me. And um, so I didn't really get on track. Uh, When I study some of the younger people that have made it young, without exception, there's at least one parent, and most of the time it's the mom, there's at least one parent that pulled out all the stops, that took you to the auditions, that sewed the costumes, that comforted you when you were bawling your eyes out, saying that you wanted to give up, that made you feel like, I can do this. No matter how many times they tell me I can't, I can do this. I can sing. I can act. I can dance. I can write. I can draw. I can paint. And if you don't have that, it's exponentially harder. It's not impossible, but it's way harder because there's no one that I've studied that's highly successful commercially and that wasn't highly successful commercially young that didn't have a parent that said, I'm going to do two things. I'm going to spend every resource I have to help my child succeed. And I'm going to put my body between my child and danger so that all the people that come and try to snuff their dream can't get close to me. And I didn't really have that like that. So, like everybody else that has to do it as an adult, you have to spend some time uh, like playface, like shedding your mask. You got all this play around you, you've been morphing your face into all these people that you aren't. And then you hit a point where you say, you know what? <laughs> I need to emerge from that, chrysalis, chrysalis, however you say it. And I need to be, I need to let the butterfly wings that they told me look funny and they don't let people like you do that. And why do you want to do that? And why would you get a real job? All them people, you got to push past their clay, let them wings sprout. And sometimes that takes four decades. <laughs> so, so now if I ever had any more children or when I work with artistic children, I know how to tell parents what to do because artistic people have no shell on their soul they're hypersensitive they're not sensitive they're hypersensitive and that's because the the more the muse has access to your mind and your soul the less of a shell you have so that's why beethoven was such an odd character because highly creative people are always like that they don't have social skill you spend so much time in your head you spend so much time creating you spend so much time hearing what you're hearing until wearing the latest shoes is not, it don't it doesn't register. So then you're oddball, you're crazy, you're blah, 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 blah. And the more you're gonna birth out those incredible works, when Handel wrote The Messiah, his career was in the toilet. He had done movement after movement, symphony after symphony, play after play, and a bomb, and they told Handel. If you don't write something good this time, you got to do something else because we ain't supporting you anymore. And handle said, oh, Lord, so he goes on this fast and he stops sleeping. And when he got through, he had written a messiah. So that is what our life is like. And so there is no, if you are that person, either your parents make you accept that when you're little and you're good with it, or you're going to have to live 40 years trying to be somebody else. And you say, you know what, these clothes ain't, this ain't. This ain't one-on-one. One, this ain't me. Then they're going to tell you, you're too old to try to do what you're trying to do. So so, so that's just a long way to go to say, you know, I, I really wish I had a Beyonce experience. Beyonce and Tina Knowles or Venus and Serena Williams or Tiger Woods. And I'm not talking about his troubles. I'm talking about his dad putting a golf club in his hand and making him practice six to eight hours a day. I really wish I'd had that or Beethoven or Mozart giving their first concerts and symphonies in nine and 10. I really wish I'd had that, but I had to go the other way. So here I am.
0: <laughs> well, you know, talking about that, you know, Tina Turner just died. And, yes. um, you know, I've always been a huge Tina fan, but what, you know, and there, somebody was going through the retrospective and going back to some her, and I watched one of her early interviews and talking about that, She was standing there and the band started playing and she just grabbed the microphone from her sister and just started belting it out. The band was like, we didn't know you could sing. And it was the moment of stepping on stage when the band doesn't know she can sing. And it's just that moment of I got to go take my shot. And then all of a sudden, then that was just the start of it. And that moment that says, I know I want to spend my career as an entertainer. It wasn't about money, it wasn't about fame, it wasn't about anything else other than walking up and saying, This is this, I've got to be there, and this is where my life comes from, is that energy. You know, and I was watching another interview, somebody talking about um one of the kids from from Mrs. Doubtfire went was would go into Robin Williams trailer in between takes and just he would be sitting there pain because he wasn't able to get all of that energy out. You know, what we saw on stage, that just explosion of energy that, you know, all and drugs, but, you know, that explosion of energy and creativity and the fact of when he couldn't be on, it was so painful because he he had that, all of that just energy that had to be out that creative energy that he had to, that need to share and, and be on stage. And you compare that to writers, artists, so many of us that are much more introverted. Right. I mean, I do a lot of time in in front of public. I do a lot of media. I do a lot of, you know, all this sort of stuff. But at the end of the day, I also very happily can go hide on my little mountaintop and go do my thing and go get work done and, and be down in the weeds as well. So I, you know, absolutely. I agree with that whole thing of if you've got somebody that helps to nurture that and show you the value in what you're doing, because I think it, it's both that that nurturing it and growing it and showing that there's value in what you're doing and that creative energy. But I think it's also that learning to reconcile the difference between how the rest of the world looks at you until you become successful, right? There's that that creative whatever however you want to define success too. Cause I mean, that's
1: well, I think uh I've studied enough successful young people to know there are plenty of things you can have as a child, but the one thing you don't have is life experience. So the the from my perspective, <clears throat> the world is a very big place and we did not create it. So whatever your faith beliefs are, you can't stand back and say, well, I did all this And what people are always trying to tell you in every specific society, is they're trying to define a concept of normal. Normal is a relative term, and it's a misnomer, a better word is common, a better word is conventional, but it takes all kinds to make a world. And I have discovered that there is nothing that holds its head down and apologizes for what it is, except people. So you don't see the lemons saying, they don't like us because we ain't sweet like the oranges. That's not fair. Lemons don't say dumb stuff like that. Uh, You know, dance don't say, well, I'm not big like the gorilla, I know I got super strength, but people can step on me, they don't say dumb stuff like that. Giraffes don't say, well, you know, I got this long neck, man, you know, they talked about me in school really badly, because this is long giraffes, don't, don't nobody say, nothing in nature says dumb stuff like that, except people. So you have to get to the point where you understand that whatever it is you are, that's not accidental, and you have to apologize for it, but it don't. It's not going to look like. So it's like you said, when you break through or when you get something commercially successful, that's the break point for for people sometimes. But the truth of the matter is, you had to live a whole life before you got to that thing that people know you for, and that doesn't even. See, because, you know, you can look at some child stars and they realize I got known, but I, I didn't live. <laughs> so let me get out of the acting and music thing and let me go live a minute. I mean, Dakota Fanning did that. She said she got that success young. Then her parents said, no, you go to high school and you need to be a cheerleader. So she did. And, you know, so I'm saying at some point, at some point, you're just going to have to accept that there's no cookie cutter uh, one size fits all path and you got to get on yours and then when people see what you produce you've been growing them apples in that orchard for 20 years they just found it so and I'm not saying that's wrong or bad I don't know if you can put an ethical uh, measuring stick on it, it just kind of is the way it is
0: well You know, one of the things that uh, watching the way things have gone down, I've I've been arguing for a lot of years that technology, things like companies like Amazon, if we look at things like YouTube, if we look at a lot of the, the things that have become available to us, right, create the opportunity for creative businesses like never before. And I think this is one of those things we also don't teach really well is that idea of, You can be a fantastic artist, musician, writer, all these things, but you still got to remember there's a business to that too if you're going to make your living at it because, you know, that's part, and I think this is a large part of what we hear is the, you know, when we hear people go and say, oh, just go get a regular job, go get this, go do that. It is a couple of things. I think it's the fear of the things that they weren't willing to try to do, right? It's a little bit of that crab pot thing of, if you're successful, then that tells me I should have gone and tried harder to take my shot at whatever my dreams were. Right. Mm-hmm. Cause I mean, everybody has the dreams for things that, that they wanted to do. Um, but I think that there's also the, you know, so there's that part that is the, I was afraid to do my thing. And if you go and you're successful, then I, then that tells me I, I'm blessed because I didn't go try, take my shot. Mm-hmm. And I think that also the other part of it becomes, Looking at all these technologies and the fact that while now there is all of this tremendous opportunity, ways that didn't exist 10 years ago, right? Indie publishing, indie, indie music, all of these sorts of things. 20 years ago, you were, you know, you just, you were busting it on stage, hoping that you, somebody found you, somebody bought an album. You were submitting, you were hitting agents, you were hitting agents, you were hitting agents, you were hitting agents, were hitting agents and just hoping for that lucky shot. And now you can create that opportunity, but you got to then do all the other stuff that goes with it. But I think the problem is now that that exists, we also don't necessarily value creativity the same way. I mean, we got the writer strike going on. You know, if we look at how Amazon squeezes the writers in a lot of ways, if we look at how... You know, creators may or may not even be compensated with the stuff they're publishing out there. It's still, even though the opportunity is much greater, I think that the that the struggle that goes along with that also has has changed and is a little bit harder. You know, how we define "I've made it," I think is is a lot more in your hands now, which is both good and bad. I don't know what you think of that.
1: Well, uh, I tend to think more in in principles. Because principles don't really change. And the principle is <clears throat> when you imagine a thing, you tend to only imagine the parts of it that you like. If and when you are to get that thing, you'll discover you have to take everything that comes along with it. And that's the difference between maturity and immaturity. If you don't ever mature, you're just gonna be complaining from one scenario to the next because you're not gonna find a situation that's all benefit and no burden. That's all pleasure, and no pain, because life itself isn't set up that way. So when I was little, my sister used to fix me some lucky charms, and I would just eat the marshmallows. And she would say, Dave, you can't just eat the charms, you have to eat the luckies too. And so it's kind of like that. It's kind of like that. You want to pick out the, the sugar sweet marshmallows and stuff, but there's a Kind of a little, you know, corn wheat thing that goes along with it. And so everything. A little, is like,
0: huh? Yeah, the little bit of nutrition that's there, you got to get that too.
1: Everything is like that, from puppies to cars to relationships, all this. So, so, so uh, what our culture, when I say our culture, I mean American pop culture, what people in this country do, because as you know, if you travel all over the world, everybody does not think like Westerners. And that's not a good or bad thing. That just is what it is. But what our culture does is it uses the the buzzwords like, you know, freedom and liberty and doing what I want and all that. And beware of people that don't understand that life is not open-ended. So we wanted all this stuff and we wanted something where there were less barriers to entry. Okay. Along with that, means you got to compete with millions of people now. When there were three stations, there were three stations and they went off at midnight. <laughs> as soon as we got cable, and now we got the streaming wars, we have so much content now, until I have to watch my shows at like two o'clock in the morning if I'm still up, because I don't have time, uh, you know? And so that's what comes along with living in a world of too much content. So so yeah, we got the, the one door open, to have more access to certain things, uh, largely because of the internet. But the flip is, like you said, the business uh, tasks don't change uh, no matter who it is that's doing them. And people that haven't had any experience on a corporate level or any experience on entrepreneurship, many times don't understand that, that all the departments that have to exist, exist literally for every business. And so, so that's what I mean when I say, so I'm, I, you know, I get all that. That kind of stuff doesn't bother me. It's, how can I put it? It's maintaining some kind of quality and integrity because that's what's gonna count in both the short and the long term. Like people that think they want fame often end up becoming infamous. And when you become infamous, you become famous for something you screwed up. <laughs> and, so, and so I'm just saying, that's what comes along with a reality TV mentality. I'm gonna do whatever I need to do to get the cameras on. Okay, if that's your introduction to the world, then that's how the world's gonna know you. Then you get all mad. That's, that's the only thing that confuses me. You put yourself out there on a certain way, So that's why, you know, that's why when I tweet, when I'm on Twitter, I use my real face and my real name. I'm not hiding nothing. I'm owning what I'm saying. This is me. You know, life is just easier when you're not not wearing a mask. But if you put yourself out there like that, you got to take everything that, that come with that kind of presentation and then people get all, I don't know what they get, but I'm like, you just saw the fame and maybe the money, but, you know, you invited people in your business on that level. Now they're in your business on that level. So I'm saying all that to say that that's what comes along with with uh, indie anything. And we also know if an indie grows big enough, it becomes mainstream. It's the funniest thing. No matter how underground it starts, if it gets big enough, then it starts resembling the very creatures it was created to counter. It's the most amazing thing.
0: Success means you become often what you were fighting or what you were but competing But you have to
1: fight hard to hold integrity, yeah.
0: <laughs> so music business. You've mm-hmm. been a lot of time around the music business. You've written a lot of stuff. You've been in music and musicals. What's that part of the business taught you? What have you learned from music? Uh,
1: what I've learned most from music is the amount of effort it takes to pull something off well. I liken a good song to an Olympic level ice skating performance. Cause if you are an Olympian for most sports, you got to train for 15 years, so about five minutes out your life. Uh, ice skating, gymnastics, uh, stuff like that. You have to train for when you can walk. And you got to train for at least a decade, maybe a decade and a half. And for you to do what you need to do to get that goal is going to be less than five minutes. I've discovered a good concert is just like that. You want to get out there and you want to kill it for two hours? You got to practice hours and hours and hours and days and weeks and months. And you have to do like a, like a you have to think like you're in the Super Bowl every time you go on stage. It has to be your best effort. No one's going to come see you with a B-minus effort. That's the thing. And that's also how a lot of music people get hooked on drugs. When you come off stage at 2 o'clock in the morning, you are amped on adrenaline. And so a whole lot of people start taking pills to pound down. But then you have to check in for rehearsal that evening, so you have to take pills to wake up. So a lot of people, that's how they get in that cycle. Because you cannot halfway play. You can't halfway sing and have a career. Like we just talked about Tina Turner. Tina Turner left it all on the stage, man. She sang until she's like, okay, I'm done. So music has taught me that that it's like that. And there's nothing nine to five about it. There's absolutely no department, even when the record label is closed and our people have to go to shows at night, search out new talent or get on YouTube. So... So it's the sheer amount of effort it takes to put together a a three minute and 30 second radio cut, a two minute TikTok cut, a four minute extended cut, a five minute instrumental, or a four on the floor dance cut for DJs, that people have no idea the kind of effort it takes. And what I teach all my students is, if you wanna start to change your frame, I want you to watch your favorite TV show. Your favorite movie is better. And I want you to stay through the credits so you can see exactly how many people it took to bring you, you know, 90 to 120 minutes worth of movie. That's what music has taught me.
0: So what about now moving over into writing? You know, what, what did you get started publishing first? And when did you finally get back to writing?
1: Uh, I never stopped writing, but I realized at one point, uh, and this is going to sound bad, so I'm not going to name it. There's a certain series that blew up that I thought was, it boggled my mind with how bad it was. And so I had a lot of conversations with people that loved it. And I'm like, I was the Emperor's New Clothes guy. I'm like, that is naked. That ain't nothing. And so (laughs) we went, round and round, and you don't understand. And that's what I kept hearing. So I sought to understand. And then once I found out who the author was and what they were about, which is why I'm not going to name it, because it'll be a whole other thing. I understood why it was successful, because I understood who it was aimed at. And once I understood that, then as funny as it sounds, I said, okay, well, I know I can write better than that. So let me give it a shot. And that may sound trite, but that's really true. Because up until that point, I was thinking I had to be, uh, 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 you know, Stephen King, or I had to be Aaron Sorkin, or I had to be, you know, just that caliber where you write those, you know, all those scenes, all the Jack Nicholson lines and Tom Cruise lines where you just, You're writing classic stuff wherever. But like when James Cameron wrote Aliens and it's one of the most quotable movies of all time, you know, Game Over Man and, you know, and Get Away From Her and blah, 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 blah. So I thought, well, you know, I don't think I'm there. So then when I saw this other thing just blew up and became a phenomenon and it was crap on a stick wrapped in macaroni, I said, okay, all right, well, bet you I'll get out there now. So that may sound really bad, but that's the truth.
0: <laughs> you know, it's amazing how almost all writers have the same moment of, wow, that got published. All right, I can do this. Yes. Th- then you find out the work and how hard it really is. But so let me ask this question. How does writing and comics and all that interplay with music. You know, how do you do you get an interplay between the shifting of the create creative elements for each? Does
1: no, one form no, the other? No, they're exactly the same. It's exactly the same. A story is like a melody or a symphony. When you're dealing with musical motifs, you deal with simple ideas and you build them, but any good melody has a peak. The key to good music is tension and release. Tension and release. And so they all have a money note. So the national anthem, the money note is, say does that star-spangled banner yet wave over the land and of the free? Free is the note. And the home of the brave. Every good melody, that's one thing you learn in school, and that's one thing you learn from studying masters. Every good melody has a shape. And so a good melody takes you on a ride with tension and release until it leads you to that peak. And it's, it's sugar to your soul by the time you get there. And then there's a tapering off and there, there's no exceptions to that. Okay. So writing stories is exactly the same process. It is no different. What you have to learn how to do, just like when you write melodies, is balance attention and release to keep your audience with you because you can't go too far in any direction you can't stay amped up all the time and if you stay too calm everybody's bored and they won't read the book so you got attention and release tension and release tension and release until you come to the 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 money page the money panel the reveal the the apex whatever and then you reset for the new equilibrium. Because now, after Vader says, Obi-Wan never told you what happened to your father, Luke said, he told me enough. He told me you killed him. He said, no, I'm your father. Uh And that was after a whole movie of Vader being obsessed with finding Luke. So he discovers Luke at the end of the first movie, and he says, this boy is extraordinarily strong with the Force. And between that one and Empire, he figured out who Luke was because he didn't know at first. So he's obsessed, and he gets this close to him on Hoth, but they get away. So then Luke goes to Dagobah, and then he chases Han and Leia and Chewie, catches them to Cloud City. So that whole thing is building a whole movie, and we and everything we love about Vader happens in Empire, except the Force choke. Force choke we meet, and his voice obviously we meet in the first film, but all through the Empire. He gets this close to Luke in the first reel. And Luke gets this close to death with the Wampa bear. And then we come back. And then he's chasing Han and Lan, And I'm going to get you. I'm going to get you. Okay. And then they're like, okay. So what's going to happen? Then it's like, it's a trap. It's a trap. And Yoda's like, don't go. It's like, don't go. Luke, like I got to go. And so that whole thing is building. And when they finally meet in that orange and blue carbon freezing chamber, and you hear Vader breathing, It is one of the most classic confrontations of all time because somebody, Kasdan or Kirshner or Lucas or all of them, somebody knew how to write a symphony. It's the exact same thing. And whenever you are disappointed in a movie, it's because that didn't happen.
0: You missed the crescendo.
1: Right. That's right. So it's the exact same process. So for me, one just feeds the other. So then you start moving into comics. Mm-hmm.
0: You know, going back to that, that love of comics. And I mean, I think most storytellers I know got a lot of their love of story from comics because you get the visual as well as the words, the language and the movement of story and how much story can be told in a frame. You know, when you're, when you're writing a novel, when you're writing a short story, something like that, you're working with, just the words. But so much can be told, so much in, in terms of just one frame or one page or even just you know the 48 pages of a book, right? Look how much story can be told in the image. I mean, the same thing is true of artwork and holding a piece of fine art. And I think this is one of those things that is often lost, except out of the true comics fans, is how much work goes in to render a piece of art that's on pulled paper.
1: Hmm. Hmm. Well, <clears throat> if if I were to break the process down, just in terms of players, you have. I won't start with the writers. I will start with whoever gives you the concept. So you have your concept, and then what should happen after your concept? is your premise. Now that's where most writers fail. What most writers do is think, because the idea popped in my head, it must be good. No, (laughs) what has to happen is you have to uh, capture as many concepts as you can on paper or on video, however you record your ideas and keep them all somewhere. Then you must sift through them to mine the gold because they thought green ketchup was a good idea and I'm like, I don't want to eat nothing look like puke, I ain't putting puke on my hot dog now so just because you have an idea, a concept doesn't mean it's a good idea and you can tell by some of the, the stuff we've seen in these last five years that, you know, you. so most writers fail right there So I got to get my concepts together and I got to write them all down or or speak them into my phone or whatever I do to capture them. Right after that, I got to sift through them and see, is there a premise worth exploring like Jurassic Park? What if we put two evolutionary giants, man and dinosaurs, back in the same ring? So so right there, that's where most writers fail. So once you get your premise together, then and only then can you call yourself starting to write. But when you write, you whenever you get through, you need an editor because you're going to think that that story is so tight. That story is so wonderful. The world is going to swoon. When they read my story, your editor is going to come in and be like, "Nope, nope, nope." They're going to slash. They're going to slash, and it's going to hurt every time they do that. And that's your next hurdle. Is you got to get over yourself. You got to get over. You have to understand that writing is rewriting. And so, if you don't get past that, you're going to shoot the first draft of your movie. And we all know what happens when you do that. So you got your concept, you got your premise, you got your writing, you got your editing. Then once you do that, the next two people that have to shake hands is your, your stable of artists, because you have to start with a penciler that even if you do stick drawings and even, even if you do storyboards, your penciler has to be someone that can pick up enough of what you're trying to do and put it on a page in the way you want to see it. There's gotta be a good marriage there. There's gotta be a good synergy there. There's gotta be, uh, I get you there. Uh, Next after your pencils is your inks. And your inks are supposed to be good enough to be able to sell the book as black and white. If your inks aren't good enough to sell without color, then they need to be improved. After that, uh, you can either do coloring next or you can do lettering next, but these are four different jobs. And your letterer has to know how to take your words and tell you, you got too many words on that page. We can't do that. Or here's a creative way to do that. Do you like the way that's laid out? But you must understand page flow. You must understand how your reader is going to experience it. And then whichever step you did with colors, you got to have somebody that make those inks jump, jump off the paper with the way they color, with the way that that it makes it explode in your brain. And then after you do all that, you've got to be sure that the flow of the entire book makes sense from start to finish, that it's a real page turner. So you have to know, you have to count your pages so you can figure out where you're putting your reveals. And, and once again, it's that, that melody, that symphony, tension and release, tension and release, tension and release until we get to the point of that book so you have to both satisfy the reader with that peak, what their appetite enough with the release for the next book. And, and when you have stories and people like that that come together, you get something like, like the Dark Phoenix saga. Because Claremont and Byrne it took them like, what did he say, a year and a half, two years to tell that whole story. And it was just, that's why we still love it to this day. Because it's monumental, because everything I just said came together.
0: Well, and, and somebody let them tell the story that long, because that's part right. of it, too. That's right.
1: Because the reason uh, Dark Phoenix keeps failing in live action is because they're failing at the premise. They're failing at the beginning. And the, and by that, I mean, they don't understand that the heart of the Dark Phoenix saga is that you must love Jean Grey. And Jean Grey was the oxymoron of a telepath that didn't know everybody was in love with her. So she's so unassuming as a character. She can read minds and she don't know all these men love me. Bobby loved me, Hank loved me, Scott loved me, Warren loved me, Professor X loved me. He said so. And she's that girl that is so, so not pretentious. That she doesn't even pick up on it. And so she's just the sweetest thing. And she's just the most unassuming thing. And she she doesn't even really like her power sometimes. They're tormenting and she's got to get help with them. And then all of a sudden, here comes Mastermind. And here comes someone who does the thing of digging up your dark side, of speaking to your lowest, deepest, I don't want anybody to see these. So I keep him in the basement desires. But you did it with a being that was infused with cosmic power. If he had done it when Gene was Gene, would have been one thing. He did it when Gene was Phoenix. And so that's what I'm saying. That whole story and then, you know, absolute power, corrupting absolutely. And once you get on a God level power, it's why we love Superman because he's got that kind of power, but he never lets it corrupt him like that. Because everybody else, people start to look small to you, inconsequential, what's one life, okay, what's 20 lives, that kind of thing. And Gene went down that path. And then when you do that, then you got to die. So now you got the dilemma of, I've done something heinous that I need to pay for, but the people that love me don't want to let me go. So it took them what, a year and a half, two years, to put the whole thing together. And it's a symphony, man. It's a symphony. It's not just a story. It's, it's everything. And so I'm saying... In comics, when you get that right, man, we love it forever. It's 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 just a thing of beauty when you get it right. But you know, people that don't know how to translate mediums know that if you don't spend time with Jean Gray, and if you don't fall in love with her, and if you don't see that she's like the the butterfly poetry, I want to go walk by the beach girl that got turned into something, that, if you can't follow that arc, it will have no punch. And so that's what I mean when I say with comics, you got to get all that. And as much of that as you can get right every time, that's what makes your book interesting. That's what makes your people engage with the characters. But it's a it's a delicate dance. You know, it, you just have to take a lot of work to master it.
0: So talking about hopping mediums and genres, because you didn't have enough stuff to complicate it enough, right? You wouldn't create an RPG.
1: <laughs> okay, 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 okay. I got to explain that. That was going to be another long-winded one. So y'all just buckle. <laughs> you know, when I first got the idea for my War in Heaven series, it, it was it was multi-threaded. One thread was the com- I, I like to figure out what people have in common because we spend most of our time talking about what divides us and I don't like that. So I said, what do we have in common? That answer, unfortunately, is suffering. because everyone wonders about why is it here? That intrigued me. The image that intrigued me was what happened to the devil the first time he saw himself in a pond or a reflective surface in the garden of Eden. You went from this beautiful, the name Lucifer means light bearer. So you went from this beautiful angel in heaven that led worship that everybody loved. You got full of yourself and got kicked out, but the next time you saw yourself, you're this twisted, ugly, gnarly, dragon, beastly thing. And I was like, you know, that that experience fascinated me. And then when I started writing, it was a short story, and then it kind of grew. And then it, it emptied into something I've always wanted to do, which was connect a story with different formats. So every part of my story world actually is in a sequence. So you can't pick out one thing uh, and get the full experience without understand, understanding all the things. And so with the RPG, the reason we went there was because the one of the, if not the underlying moral theme, of the story is choice, because that's what confounds people about anything divine the most. That's what confuses people and angers people, enrages people, that they don't understand why God gave us a choice. And the reason they don't understand that is because people project their human foibles onto that which is divine. Because if you had all power, all you would do is control people. Because that's what we try to do with the power that we have. All we would ever do, you would make the people love you that you want to love you. You would control people. That's the way we are. And so that's why humans cannot understand choice. That confounds people. But it only confounds you when it's people you don't like and stuff you don't like. Because when you make your choices, you ain't got no problem with life then. So I wanted to illustrate that because I get that very, very well. So I wanted to create a medium where the RPG is about, uh, it's right after the first wave has hit. And now the angels got to decide if they're light-sided or dark-sided. And for a lot of them, it's the first time in their existence, that such a thing has ever even been an issue. And I wanted to use that to illustrate the way we make our choices, because the way the RPG works is you have to go on different tasks and complete certain tasks, but you have a choice to use light side powers or you can cheat and use dark side powers. Because before Lucifer, they didn't know none about dark side powers. Then Lucifer introduced that because that's the same thing he did in the garden. If you read Genesis, he introduced something to Eve's mind that she hadn't thought about before. So, cause I was I was like, how do you talk a third of the angels out of heaven into joining your side? How, how is that done? So you got to choose in this game. And I, I thought the perfect way to illustrate that was a role play. I'm faced with a task, I have options, but I gotta live with the consequences of my options. So if I use light-sided power, sometimes that might take me longer, and i might have to help other brethren along the way but when i get through with the task i still have all my integrity if i choose dark side powers i might be able to get it done faster but it took a took a bite out of my soul and so by the time you get through the game your choices are kind of determined like where you are and what you are and then when you go to the next round you have to play as the character you've become not how you started, but how you become. And I just really wanted to illustrate that. Because again, that's what we struggle with. We struggle with choice. It, ju- it just confounds people. So when you make that choice and then you get what come along with it, you're just, why is this happening? Well, it's happening because I picked a water bottle up and I drunk the water. And then that's why, that, that's why that happened. If I had put the water bottle down, then, then it wouldn't be happening. Something that simple, it, it freaks us out. And so I wanted to illustrate that in the context of giving celestial beings a situation to where some of them have never seen this kind of thing. So they've got to decide who it is they want to be, because that actually was, is what spills over when you introduce mankind. Because when you introduce mankind, it's literally the same scenario that we have to decide and that just freaks people out it's just, it just so i wanted to put it in something where the concepts could be illustrated and there's no better way to do that than in a game no better way to illustrate anything than in a game to where i choose what i choose and i get what i get because i chose what i chose so once i know that was long-winded but that's the answer <laughs> no and i mean i think
0: that but i think that that encapsulates a lot because You know, when we when we find fandoms, when we think when we find subjects we love, when we find stories that that engage us, part of the reason they engage us is because we can step into that. Mm -hmm. And I think that the idea of having a game we can step into. I mean, we look at things like The Witcher, right? You've got book series, you've got games, you've got you've got people that immerse into both worlds because they want to live that world. And I think one of the most fascinating things you can ever do is enable somebody to tell their own story in somebody else's world. Yeah, Mm because it's one thing for us to look and go and say, I'd have never made that choice. You know, but if you get to face difficult choices in a game environment that's ultimately safe, but you can still live consequences, Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of opportunity for growth and experience in that, especially when you're dealing with some very heady philosophical, religious, and belief-based topics. I think it's one of those things. It's an opportunity for people to evaluate their belief systems, look at what they believe, why they believe it, and look at choices and consequences, right?
1: Well, to me, uh, yes, I agree with you. To me, it's the old Batman-Joker thing. Mm -hmm. because people keep saying why didn't Superman kill, why doesn't Batman kill you know, the Joker should have been dead a long time ago, which I agree with, but they always say, you know if they do that, they're no better than them, which I disagree with because there's such a thing as justice, but it's a conversation we have in geekdom perennially you know, how much death does the Joker get to cause and get away with where somebody takes him off the board it don't have to be Batman what did you say in Batman Begins? I'm not going to kill you, but I'll have to save you. You know, it don't have to be Batman. It could be Jason. It needs to be Jason and Barbara, really, if you ask me. Because the Joker has done so much stuff to them until... But the point I'm trying to make is that hmm, uh, if you go down certain paths, are you entertaining the danger of becoming the very thing you're fighting? So that's why Superman as a character draws such a hard line And Batman also draws that same hard line because both of them know if we go there, we're not coming back because they're like cops. They see uh, 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 a lot of the ugly side of humanity. You know, Batman lives in the shadows. He deals with a lot of stuff and Superman can see almost through anything except lead. So they're like, if we really let our frustration with the evil in this world push us, to become murderers, to become judger and executioner. Then we're now we're going down a path that makes us no better than the very thing that we're fighting. But right in the middle of them, you got Diana. They don't care nothing about none of that. Diana's like, okay, well, if death is the only way, then Diana's very pragmatic. She's like, okay, well, Maxwell Lord and taking over your mind, and he said he's gonna do it again, so he got to go. You know, didn't take her no, she didn't have to struggle because she's an Amazon. She's not Western. I keep trying to tell people that. She's not American. She wore that costume because her mother made it for her so she would be more accepted when she came here. She is not Western and she doesn't have Western values. Her original idea was building a bridge between Themyscira and America. That's why she has the Star-Spangled costume, but that's not who she is as a person. And so when Diana sees that something needs to be done, she don't have that struggle, which I find fascinating. So Batman and Superman are all about Diana's like, yeah okay, this would need to happen. Okay. See, see see, I love that stuff. I love it. So whatever characters you're using, those kind of ideas because everybody's got got such a everybody believes wholeheartedly that their take is right. but it's it's the blind men and the elephant thing one's touching the trunk and one's touching the ears and one's touching the belly and one's touching the tail and they're all saying that they're right
0: well and I again I think part of the part of the joy in this and part of part of the the good side of being a storyteller right is you get to let people see life and experience through somebody else's eyes mm-hmm. Because we can always speak to our experience and our experiences is ours. You know, how I was raised, the things I've done, the choices I've made, the opportunities I've had, the challenges I've had to face, those are mine. And that'll inform what I do from here on out. But as a storyteller, when we get the opportunity to say, look at the world through my, my eyes, my experience, how I was raised and understand my viewpoint and, and, and how these things have played out, I think also gives that ability for people to at least evaluate their options and choices through more than one lens. And this is where I run into a lot, is people go and say, I have this one view, I have this one life, I have this this viewpoint, and mine's got to be right because it's mine. And I think that often if we have that ability to stop back and say... I have a chance to look at life and experience through somebody else's eyes somebody else's viewpoint somebody else's experience and see what that looks like to them now i can at least sit at the table and have a conversation i can i may not agree but i can sit down and i can at least empathize and i think this is where when we look at the story of batman and superman they're both fundamentally wanting to pursue justice different angles i mean it's it's the shadow side and the light side right you know we we see batman often as is being in that role in that position of dark justice and vigilante and having to do the hard the hard choices but knowing that he's only willing to go so far because if he goes over that edge there's no coming back for superman it's that i can't tarnish and i don't want to carry that weight i mean but for both of them it's that thing of I know that if I do the thing, I will have to carry that burden for the rest of my life. We, well, can look exactly. at
1: and, and,
0: yeah, we can look at Wonder Woman as the warrior. you know, And a little bit of that edge of divinity that I'm not of your world. That's just a problem that needs to be taken care of. And that's where you have that almost cold, not dispassionate, because there, there very much is passion there, but it's the, how do I see what needs to be done, and just, you know, I'll take the consequences, but this needs to be done, and because it's the greater good, right?
1: Well, Wonder Woman is a homunculus. Humoncul- she was a clay statue brought to life. and That's why I always honor that origin. I throw out all the ones, because that makes her the most unique. But I'm saying the people that are the masters of what you just said are comedians. Mm-hmm. Comedians tell more truth many times than other people that claim they're truth-tellers. Because what comedians do is they make you laugh while they're telling it so you don't get mad. So they just say what needs to be said. Uh, Chris Rock, uh, George Carlin. Uh, There's no comedian you can name that is just hilarious. It's just not telling you the truth. They're just couching in humor so you don't storm the stage because if they just set it flat, then that would be you know mob justice that's you know one thing so yeah it's 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 getting you to kind of pull the curtain back or maybe examine some other things but like i said the uh because because the, the way i think <laughs> what's always painfully obvious to me is that everybody fighting because they keep saying that they're right and i keep saying to myself It's possible that you're not incorrect, but perhaps incomplete. It's possible for me to have an angle on something that is provable and objective and has facts and science. But the angle that I have is maybe 15% of the whole. So maybe I meet some new people that can show me some other parts of the whole that I can't see at all. And now I have a 45% view because I met two other 15 percenters. And now I'm almost at half at what the thing is. But if I'm not open to that, then I'm going to take my 15% and I'm going to march through life and say to everybody, that ain't about that. And that's another thing I noticed is this all or nothing mentality. Lord have mercy. Some things in life are all or nothing, but life is full of combinations and blends and spectrums and shades. So some things are either or. Some things are, it depends on where we are. And so I find that fascinating too, because you cannot tie life down. And that's what people keep trying to do. They keep trying to tie life down. We're going we're gonna to codify it. And we're going to say, these are all the species of bees that there are. Then 10 years from now, here comes this bee you ain't never seen. Me. And they're like, what is that? And see, life, that's the way life is. It's always throwing you stuff that how all your vast knowledge didn't prepare you for the fact that it's bigger than you think it is. And so that's what I like to illustrate. Superheroes are great at that because it's already a fantasy based setting, but people think sometimes we're suspending our disbelief just for the powers, but it is just so great when we're the powers and the costumes and the over the top mustache twirling, but then there's a, a, a moral conflict in there that makes you makes you really think, makes you, huh? What do you do if you're 15 years old? And you have spider powers because Peter reacted like a normal person would. He did not react like Clark. He reacted like a normal sophomore in high school would react if all of a sudden you got all the best parts of the spider. You know, I want fame. I want money. I want cars. I want girls. Let's get this going. And then it was the tragedy of his choice. There it is again. That led to his entire life changing. And then he became a crime fighter. It wasn't until he lost Uncle Ben that he decided to dedicate that. And then Spider-Man's dilemma is what do I do when my crime-fighting life bleeds over into my personal life? Superman has somehow always been able to manage that enough to where, because Lois Lane is iconic, you can't kill Lois Lane. So, you know, but when you're Spider-Man and you're not on that power level, you can only be on one side of town at a time. I don't care how fast you web-swing, especially in New York or the Bronx or wherever. So when you're Peter, you got to really deal with, man, am I going to make my bio class or am I going to fight the rhino in downtown Manhattan? Because I can't do both. See that? See, I love that. I love that. So the powers aren't real, but the idea of, you know, I got, because we make choices like that every day. And it, I love it. I was like, so that's why I love telling stories in that superhero medium because you can deal with almost every angle. Like I love John Byrne's take on the Fantastic Four. It resonated with me so deeply. It had a retroactive effect on the way I saw the Fantastic Four. There, were, that was my first comic and that was my first group. And to this day, they're still my favorite group. John Byrne wrote Reed Richards to say, in his private moments, he said, I turned my family into a bunch of freaks. And I know I did. And they they that happened to them because of me. If I didn't spin it into something positive, they will become suicidal or destructive. So I said, hey, let's, let's be superheroes. Let's be celebrities. Let's, let's not wear masks. Let's be out and open. Let's do this new thing and whatever, and we'll be cool. So of course, Johnny and Sue can buy that. Ben couldn't buy it. Ben knew the truth. Ben was the truth. Every time Reed looked at Ben, he saw the truth. So I'm saying, I just love that. I just love that, that he he was thinking. He was, he was thinking on his feet. He's like, I gotta find a way to spin this to make it livable. Because I have permanently changed our lives with my overzealous pursuit and my lack of safety protocols. Now we're gonna have to live with this. I love that. See, so the powers are the fantasy part, but that idea, that idea is incredible. I mean, I mean, that's the same thing that happens to uh reality TV families. You put your family on TV and then they get famous, and then some stuff happened, and now your kids got to live with that. That's not their fault. It's the same idea. It's Reed Richards stealing rocket ship going into space. And the cosmic race hit you. Same thing. You put your family on TV. Maybe scandals came out. Maybe something happened. And now them kids are scarred for life. You did that. Same idea. See, that's why I love it. That's why I love it.
0: Well, talking about fame and talking about the fact that, you know, kind of looking at everything you've done and it just to now, right? And, you know, you talked about the idea of, yeah, uh, you know, it took you four decades. To get back to you know putting the words to paper and actually putting the books out the door, right? Well, it's never you know none of us are ever too old to start, and I mean, so now you're kicking into a nice little surprise, right? So what's the next big kicker on the end of this?
1: <laughs> the next big kicker is Trump is pleased. I'm <laughs> Starting uh, my own comic company, it's called Nucleus Comics. My tagline is where comics are born. And I have so many original characters and stories. And the, the biggest irony of this is of course that a lot of these I wrote when I was very, very little. I still have my original comics that I drew when I was a child. And so I'm just now getting that stuff out there. But as an adult, I'm able to finally realize them. And I'm so excited until i i i i just can't i can't wait to get them out i i want to share these stories with the world i want to i want to wake up every day and feel like i felt cuz when you're doing what you love every day is christmas eve man you just you know can't go to sleep wake up that kind of thing and uh and like i said you know i i, I just love them so because they are Wish fulfillment is too cliche. And sometimes people have used that as a derogatory phrase, just like fan service has become a pejorative in the mouths of some people. But what I mean is Billy Batson gives you hope. Billy Batson gets to skip the roughest years of his life and go from 12 to 30 and have the powers of gods and great men in his body. And and what would that be like? What would that be like to be able to go from being in junior high school to being grown and you've got the power of gods on your shoulders? And, And he was chosen for that, for the wizard. I just tweeted about this the other day, because of Black Adam. Because the wizard messed up when he picked Teth Adam, because he went evil instantly. I mean, literally, like in the same panel, you breaking necks. So that's why the wizard chose a child the next time. So stuff like that, it fascinates me because if I tell that story to a 12-year-old, what is their response? If I tell that story to a 30-year-old, the age to cap is, what is their response? So many different perspectives there. So since I love that kind of stuff, I want to infuse my kind of company with that kind of creativity, where we can we can have the whole experience. We can have the costumes and the powers and the fantastic worlds and, and the cool dilemmas, but at the same time, we can think about what does it mean to be human? Uh if you live long enough, a part of you turns into your parents. I've lived long enough to understand that you have the same conversations in life, you just have them from different seats at the table. So when you're 16, you're having that conversation with your parents. When you have kids, you have the exact same conversation from the other side of the table, because that's the way life is. And so when you're little, you're looking up at a grandpa and, and Mimi and they just look old to you because you thought they were just born old. They just old. Did you see this picture of, of, of Grahams with jet black hair? And you're like, Grahams with, with black hair? Because you can't imagine that they were ever anything than what you know them as. And so superheroes are a perfect vehicle for the discovery that you have in life that, that you can talk about Superman all you want to. What if you got superpowers, what would you do? Superheroes are the perfect vehicle for, for reflective services, for introspection, for making you broaden your horizons, for making you realize how big the world is. I mean. That's why I love it. That's why I want to do it. You can go to real places on the Earth. You can go to fantasy planets that don't exist. But it's the, the the strength of Star Trek, we love the technobabble and we love the situations. It was always the moral dilemma. It was like we're still arguing about, should Janeway have killed a two-bix or not? It's always mm-hmm. the moral dilemma. It's always, what do you do when you're the captain? What do you do when you fall in love with a woman? But that woman living means that the Axis powers win World War II and the world falls. So now she got to die. You got to let her die. See, see, I I love that stuff. So I wanna infuse my company with that kind of creativity, that kind of growth, that kind of the, the wide-eyed wonder of childhood that stops you from the narrow-eyed cynicism of age.
0: Well, David, how can everybody support that project and how can they find you to uh, check out all the stuff you're into?
1: All right. Well, right now I've got a newsletter set up. So you can go to nucleuscomics.com, sign up for the newsletter. And what I do there is I let people know how things are progressing, uh, when I'm going to have things ready. The best way to find me is on Twitter because I'm on Twitter every day. DT2 Comics Chat, DT and then the number two comics chat is uh, my space on Twitter. And I love interacting with people, love meeting new people, love talking comics. And um, so that's the best way now. And then if you wanna see absolutely everything I'm doing, you go to my home website, which is davidtaylor2, the number two dot net. There you can see all my books, my music, my games, my, uh, everything I'm creating.
0: Well, David, I appreciate you coming to hang out with me for, well, we've been going for a couple hours today, but, um, I really appreciate you coming on and we're going to probably have to do a part two of this. So, but, uh, otherwise I hope you really have inspired a lot of people to go out there and go start creating their own worlds. And until next
1: week, thank you for having Creator me. Pro's. This was great. Thank you.